Death by Ignorance, Episode 8, Inside Trump's Head. A disclaimer right off the bat. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, and I don't care. If I see a house on fire, I'm going to tell someone. I have a friend, he's a good friend, and I'm privileged to have known him for the last 20 years. We have nothing much in common except for the fact that we both used to do the same kind of work. I met him at a low point in my life, and as it turned out, it was a low point in his life too. We disagree on virtually everything, with one crucial exception. We both agree that our relationship is valuable. And the main reason we both find it so valuable is because we both cherish having a place in our individual lives to which we can retreat and speak frankly and honestly and fearlessly with a person who'll listen carefully and one who won't sit in judgment. We both learned that there is one particular area that isn't very useful for us to go when we talk. We don't talk about his faith or the absence of mine. And that isn't meant to imply that we haven't had those conversations, because we certainly have. That's why we both agree there isn't much need to go there anymore. I know he's delusional, and he knows that I'm going to burn in hell for eternity. We agree to disagree, and we leave it at that. But nothing else gets a free pass. Or I thought that's the way it was until just a couple of days ago. We were chatting about this and that, mostly related to our children and gastric ulcers, when the conversation started to move towards politics. Now, we are polar opposites in many respects, but in no area other than the God thing is it more apparent than in our politics. This radical divergence of our ideologies is one of the reasons I value our conversations so highly. They're certainly the best opportunities that I ever have to get a close look at the workings of a staunchly libertarian worldview. And while my own personal position is a lot closer to that of a pragmatic centrist, I still like to think that the feeling is mutual. The conversation was beginning to skirt the outer edges of our president's fitness to hold high office when I was suddenly aware that this was a place that I didn't want to go. As you'll quickly gather, I have a pretty strong opinion on this particular issue, and I seldom hesitate to launch into a diatribe the moment the subject is mentioned. But you could almost hear the screech and smell the burning rubber as I slammed on the brakes, so eager was I to change the subject. I knew what the problem was instantly, and it's been on my mind ever since. The more I've thought about it, the more convinced I've become that my unanticipated reluctance to go there is emblematic of a communication problem that's both more widespread and more consequential than I'd previously appreciated. The source of my personal reluctance to spell out to my friend all the ways in which the US president is so patently unfit to hold the office has become pretty clear. I was newly aware that in doing so, I'd be implying that anyone still willfully blind to or making excuses for this unhinged sociopath must be as unmoored from reality as he is. And it boiled down to this. 
I was afraid to speak out about the terrifying consequences of a modern-day Caligula in the White House because I was simply afraid of hurting my dear friend's feelings. And that's when it occurred to me. Isn't this exactly what the president and his henchmen want? An America where the people are so polarized that we daren't even go there? I'm getting ahead of myself. Who is Donald Trump? I never paid much attention to the Trump family. I was vaguely aware of Donald's father, Fred Trump, and that he was a real estate magnate of some type in Brooklyn or Queens, I wasn't sure, and that Trump the Younger had expanded the business into Manhattan. When his name did come up, it was usually in the context of his latest bankruptcy or some lawsuit or or later on, there was a ton of coverage about how he was fleecing his uh, enrollees at his university. It was never anything good. Mercifully, I only saw part of one episode of his television series, The Apprentice, which was enough for me to A, learn that the man was an egocentric blowhard who loved to hear himself talk, B, to discover that he was cruel and a heartless bully, and C, ensure that I would never watch another minute of reality television. For the next several years, I remained blissfully unaware of the repulsive man's comings and goings. Then in the spring of 2016, pretty much everything changed. Trump was gaining traction in the Republican primaries, and as the field narrowed to just him, Cruz, and Rubio, it became harder to ignore the man's bombast. Feeling a little like Alex undergoing the Ludovico technique in A Clockwork Orange, the Trump-saturated media demanded my attention. In June of that year, The Atlantic published The Mind of Donald Trump by Northwestern University professor of psychology Dan P. McAdams. The piece was subtitled Narcissism, Disagreeableness, and Grandiosity. A psychologist investigates how Trump's extraordinary personality might shape his possible presidency. If you haven't read this article, you really should, and I will link it in the show notes. At the time, it seemed like a fairly damning indictment of a seriously unbalanced mind. But in retrospect, it reads more like an almost quaint understatement of what we've come to see as Trump's truly alarming sociopathy. A few sentences from the piece stand out as harbingers of the dark days ahead. A faintly heard siren we didn't realize at the time was coming for us. Quoting Mark Singer from his New Yorker profile of Trump, he wrote, An existence unmolested by the rumbling of a soul. McAdams went on to wonder if this might not have been a little harsh of Singer. I wonder if he still feels that way today. McAdams went on to refresh our memories concerning the five dimensions of human variability. Extraversion, neuroticism, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and openness. And remind us that mo most folks fall somewhere pretty close to the center in each of these dimensions. 
Scores on each of these dimensions remain fairly constant through an individual's life, so they offer something like a psychological fingerprint, if you will. Trump, he stated, has always exhibited a trait profile that puts him off the charts on two traits, sky-high extroversion and rock-bottom agreeableness. The extroversion trait is manifest by gregariousness, social dominance, enthusiasm, and reward-seeking behavior, while agreeableness is characterized by warmth, care for others, altruism, compassion, and modesty. Trump's tireless pursuit of wealth, approval, and fame are typical of the extrovert's relentless reward-seeking behavior. But where his profile stands out most starkly is just how disagreeable a person he is. Words that describe the nature of disagreeableness include callous, arrogant, rude, heartless, and entirely lacking in empathy. Nixon was the former title holder for the country's most disagreeable president, but the last three years have seen him relegated to a distant second-place reprobate. In trying to calculate how effective Trump would be as a White House decision-maker, McAdams missed the mark by quite a wide margin. He suspected that Trump would be flexible and pragmatic as a decision-maker, that he would think long and hard about the consequences of his decisions. He correctly assumed that Trump's lack of ideology would result in unpredictable decision-making and that he wouldn't back away from high-risk decisions. Decisions like, say, taunting an irrational North Korean dictator, a dictator with nuclear weapons, no less. But it was his disagreeableness ranking that led McAdams to conclude that the future president's decision-making capacity and style would be informed primarily by his explosive anger and his casual relationship to the truth. Psychological research has demonstrated that disagreeable people are often viewed as untrustworthy. Would it then be reasonable to predict that a man as thoroughly disagreeable as Trump would also show an uncommonly high degree of untrustworthiness? Even before the 2016 election, it was already glaringly obvious that Donald Trump was a pathological liar. One of those people who lies habitually, continuously, even when there is absolutely no reason to do so. In his 2016 campaign statement, Trump made claims that were true an astonishing 2% of the time. PolitiFact calculated that Trump's statement included claims that were mostly false, false, or pants on fire, their lowest possible measure of truthfulness, a mind-boggling 75% of the time. The only candidate who came close to that degree of lying was, unsurprisingly, Ted Cruz, but he only lied 66% of the time. I wonder if anyone was actually listening when this respected academic predicted that a President Trump would be a tough, bellicose, threatening, and explosive leader. Or did no one care? 
Much has been made of Trump's admiration of Andrew Jackson, a president whose perceived intemperance, vulgarity and stupidity earned him the moniker Jackass and incidentally gave the Democratic Party a symbol, the donkey, still in use today. Trump's role model, Jackson, was described by Thomas Jefferson as one of the most unfit men I knew of, a man of terrible passions and a dangerous man who chokes with rage. Jackson was viewed by Washington insiders as an angry populist. He demonstrated long before the term became part of the psychological jargon the behaviors of the archetypal authoritarian. Today, the authoritarian personality describes those beliefs and values characterized by adherence to traditional societal norms, submission to authorities that personify these norms, and antipathy to anyone or anything that is outside the group. The authoritarian personality, when it manifests in white Americans, is typified by prejudice against, hatred of, and aggression towards any number of outgroups. Most often those are identified as homosexuals, African Americans, Muslims, and immigrants. An authoritarian worldview is characterized by cognitive rigidity, militarism, and Christian fundamentalism. The political scientist Matthew McWilliams conducted a national poll in the run-up to the 2016 election, and from the results concluded that authoritarianism was the single most important trait in predicting who would become a loyal Trump supporter. The role of Andrew Jackson as Trump's primary influencer is eerily poignant when we remember how Jackson's authoritarian mandate led to the forced relocation of 45,000 Native Americans from their homes in Georgia to the wastelands of 1820s Oklahoma at a cost of 4,000 Cherokee lives on the Trail of Tears. Another of McAdams' prescient observations was that Trump's self-proclaimed mastery of deal-making would be an insufficient skill set when it came to running a complex and unwieldy government. He based this prediction on Trump's well-documented business record as a rigidly one-dimensional bully, lacking any appreciation of nuance. He nailed it. Even before his 2016 election, it was impossible not to appreciate Trump's malignant narcissism. Narcissism is the unlovely expression of excessive self-love and comes from the Greek legend of Narcissus, a boy who falls deeply in love with his reflection in a pool and lost in self-adoration, he falls into the water and drowns. Narcissism usually manifests in grandiosity and a sense of entitlement and perhaps unsurprisingly, it's not especially uncommon in U.S. presidents. A 2013 study evaluated the relative narcissism of American presidents through history and found that the top three narcissists were LBJ, Teddy Roosevelt, and you guessed it, Andrew Jackson. 
If this study is repeated in the future, there is simply no way that LBJ gets to remain on top of that list. In that study, an attempt was made to correlate the degree of narcissism with objective assessment of presidential performance. The narcissists tended to be persuasive, strong legislative initiators, and rated as stronger presidents by historians. They were also more likely to be unethical and, oh yes, to get impeached. Despite a great deal of insight into the man's character, the direction in which he would take the United States remained a mystery. With the president-elect lacking a clear agenda, and given his propensity to jump from ideology to ideology on a whim, we were left with nothing more than a dawning sense of impending doom. But that was then, and this is now. Our country has changed in the last 1,000 days, and so has the world. How many Americans watched the inauguration, listened to a barely coherent inaugural address made before a smallish crowd of damp and ebullient Trump diehards, and feared for America's future. I, for one, consoled myself by clinging to the belief that Washington's grown-ups, experienced professionals, and career political operatives would keep this fractious, unsophisticated, and unprepared man-baby, this pumpkin-hued narcissus, on a short leash and far away from any red buttons. But that hopefulness didn't last long, of course, as the cabinet immediately began to fill up with the unqualified, the corrupt, and the incompetent, and not a grown-up in the bunch. Those of us who were able to convince ourselves that given time, Trump would mature into the position, and that maybe we'd been overcritical or uncharitable in prejudging him temperamentally unfit to lead the free world. Well, we were in for a rude awakening. I believe that the best leaders are men and women who are principled and wise, prudent and restrained, of stable temperament and good judgment, honest and well-informed. Of course, few leaders will demonstrate the character and constitution to exhibit all of these qualities. The Nelson Mandela's and Mahatma Gandhi's of the species are rare birds indeed. But shouldn't we expect all of our leaders to show many or even most of these traits most of the time? But in which alternate reality do we find ourselves today where the most important and powerful man on the planet has literally none of these qualities? These are the dominant personality traits of Donald Trump, every one of which has been prominently on display for the last three years, and many of which should alone have been sufficient to keep him out of public office. Number one, narcissism. Several renowned psychologists have gone on record describing him as a textbook example of a narcissist. In one case, the scientist has been archiving recordings of Trump's proclamations to use as the perfect examples of narcissistic behavior for his students in the future. Number two, dishonesty. The president seldom tells the truth. 
so seldom, in fact, that I sometimes feel that when he does speak the truth, it's by accident. He lies about literally anything and everything for seriously consequential matters to the utterly trivial. I think we can agree that all politicians lie, though they might prefer to have it referred to as dissembling. But when they do, there's usually a reason for it, to get votes, to avoid embarrassment, to pass laws, whatever it may be. And while reprehensible, the practice is at least rational. Their line could be seen as a means to an end. The president does it out of habit, nothing more, nothing less. I doubt he even knows he's lying. It's just that automatic a behavior. If you need an actual number to support my claim that his lying is continuous, he has made a total of 12,019 false or misleading claims between his inauguration and August the 5th of this year. That's roughly 13 times a day that the president has lied to us. Number three, cheating. Whether he's cheating at golf, which apparently he does all the time, uh, cheating on his wife, or cheating the American people by using his office to enrich himself, his drive to win and win at all costs must really leave him with no choice. From what I hear, his prowess on the golf course is such that he still has to cheat, and that's when the toadies and sycophants he's playing against are trying to let him win. To quote the great man himself, sad. Number four, entitlement. The president is the embodiment of entitlement. The rules are there for other people, not for him. It's seen most clearly in the way he demands absolute loyalty from everyone in his orbit, yet offers absolutely no loyalty in return. He uses people and then discards them without a second thought. Even the weaklings who willingly sold their souls to the devil and sacrificed their last shred of human decency on the altar of Trump, people like Jeff Sessions and Scott Pruitt and Ryan Zinke, they were thrown away without a second thought when they'd served their purpose. Don't get me wrong, their departures were categorically good things for the country. But isn't there supposed to be some redemptive honor among thieves? Not with Trump, there isn't. Number five, gullibility. Our leader is a conspiracy theorist. He's able to deny facts, facts that have incontrovertible evidence to back them up, and yet embrace any number of entirely nonsensical conspiracy theories and do so without a shred of irony. This is one of the, the traits that his supporters are quick to suggest provide evidence of Trump's mastery of three-dimensional chess. He's only pretending to believe these things, to trick his enemies into thinking he's a slow-witted dullard. I've actually heard that said out loud. It's amazing. Does that argument feel to you like the last-ditch bluster of the desperate? Of course it does. That's exactly what it is. Number six, impulsivity. Trump lacks self-control because he comes from a world 
where he's never needed it. His position at the head of a family business is probably the only circumstance, other than the presidency of the United States, where his impulsive behavior would ever even be tolerated. Can you imagine getting on a plane piloted by a man like Trump for trusting him to do your coronary artery bypass surgery? Of course not. Seven, cruelty and vindictiveness. You just have to look at our southern border. Separation of families, putting children in cages, sending parents back to their miserable, dangerous lives in Central America without their children. What more evidence of this monster's cruelty do you need? Torturing children can never, ever be justified and should never, ever be tolerated. Even having to say that out loud fills my heart with dread. What kind of country condones such behavior? Number eight, misogyny and sexual predation. You know, we forfeited our right to feel outraged by this man's treatment of women when he was given a pass after telling the whole world that he was a predator and that he'd committed sexual assaults repeatedly and with impunity. And he boasted proudly of these exploits. And as much as this tells us about the personality of Trump, it arguably tells us even more about the real values of the country's Christian fundamentalists who sprang to his support, who were tripping over each other to line up behind their predator-in-chief. Number nine, paranoia. As unhealthy as this trait may be, in his case, it would be at least partially justified. He cuddles up to people who wouldn't bat an eye at the prospect of an end to Western democracy, or an end to Donald Trump for that matter. And a part of me thinks a little touch of paranoia might be an encouraging thing to find in Trump's head. The most rational thing for Trump to be paranoid about would be his uncovering as an imposter. But to be paranoid about that, he would have to have insight into the fact that he is an imposter and an imbecile. And I just don't see that happening. Number 10, racism and xenophobia. I have a hard time getting my head around this part of Trump's personality. His behavior stinks of racism and xenophobia, but there's something that just doesn't seem accurate about this easy explanation. To be a committed racist takes, well, commitment. And Trump is committed to only one thing, and that's Trump. It makes more sense to me that his racist acts and words are just part of his shtick, his act. His base didn't turn out to be the wealthy aristocrats, the movers and shakers of business that he'd hoped they'd be. They turned out to be struggling workers in small-town America, the angry, the let-down, the disenfranchised farmers, toiling far, far away from his Manhattan palace. Men and women who were more religious than intellectual, products of the American education system, 
So it didn't take Trump long to figure out that a major motivator for his base is this fear of other. And lacking any principles of his own, Trump became exactly what his base wanted him to be. The man is a sham, a play actor, and his racism and xenophobia seem to me like they're just props. Trump lacks the character to be a real racist. To do that would require him to care about something, anything other than himself. And that's just impossible. Number 11. Dictator Worship His love and respect for some of the most repulsive people on this planet should be a source of great concern to all of us. He clearly wants to emulate these dangerous people. He wants to be just like them a ruthless authoritarian dictator. What his severely stunted intellect is preventing him from seeing that these terrible people, like everybody else in the world, are just laughing at him and waiting for opportunities to exploit his cluelessness. Putin, though, is a special case, as Trump's outlandish behavior at the recent G7 clearly demonstrates. It seems entirely plausible that Putin has Trump over a barrel of some kind. Maybe it's more P-tapes or evidence of some type of financial entanglement with Russia or something worse. In truth, it's possible, if slightly less plausible, that Trump's behavior is simply a manifestation of his infatuation with Vlad. Maybe he sees the two of them riding shirtless into the sunset after Putin gives Trump another four years in power, you know, like a love offering. I could go on, but what's the point? Our leader is unprincipled, erratic, reactive, willfully uninformed, and a pathological liar. Trump's an autocrat who has little, if any, understanding of or respect for the functioning of a liberal democracy. He's never lived in one. No, he's been ruling his empire from his golden throne high atop his palace, cut off from the America that the rest of us live in. He has no concept of the day-to-day realities of living and working in the United States. His sense of entitlement is absolute. And it's this existence far above the unwashed masses that he's interpreted as his carte blanche to say and do whatever he wants with complete disregard for and immunity from the consequences of his self-indulgence. Donald Trump is a crook. Using any conceivable interpretation of the word, he's a crook. He's flaunted the laws of the land, both by profiting from his public office and by violating laws governing campaign finance. He's obstructed justice and doubled down by instructing investigations into his obstruction. Worst of all, he's engaged with foreign leaders who are bent on attacking and destroying our democracy. And let's not forget that he's also the unindicted co-conspirator of his former confidant and attorney, a man who's currently serving out a prison sentence for his part in these crimes. He has promised presidential pardons to any underling who commits a crime 
in order to hasten completion of the non-existent wall along our southern border before election time. Even tricky Dick Nixon drew the line here. He refused to pardon Howard Hunt for his role in planning the Watergate break-in, and according to the actual tapes of the conversation with John Dean, he said, It's just not right. My imagination is simply not fertile enough for me to imagine a situation in which Trump would say, that's just not right. The scope of Trump's corruption is as staggering as it is unprecedented. Remember when we used to impeach presidents for having sex with a consenting adult? What has changed to where the endless scandals and ongoing criminal behavior of this man are just shrugged off, ignored, or taken as evidence of a left-wing witch hunt. Something else that we're hearing more and more of these days is that he's getting worse, that his recent behavior has somehow pushed the boundary even further towards the horizon, and it's turning the Trump presidency into some kind of David Lynch movie. But I'm not really convinced that he is getting worse. Sure, some of his recent behavior has been pretty amazing, blowing his top and insulting a head of state when she wouldn't sell him a big chunk of their country, warming to the idea that maybe he is in fact the king of Israel or the second coming or the chosen one, Yes, I agree, this is really bizarre behavior. But I'm really not convinced that we need to consider this some kind of evidence of cognitive decline. These behaviors really aren't qualitatively any different from the other bizarre and inexplicable things that he says and does. He's still the same pathetic buffoon. If there's been a quantitative shift in this craziness, it would most likely be that he senses the country may be getting bored with his antics, and the only way he can stay front and center on every news outlet is to turn up the volume a bit. Now, that would be entirely consistent with this man's off-the-chain narcissism. But even though I don't think he's getting worse, it doesn't change the fact that he's still the most dangerous man on the planet and still the most unfit president of all time, including Andrew Jackson, and he still needs to go. But let's try to put all this back in some kind of perspective. Too much has been made of Trump's role in dividing the people of the country. He does make the perfect scapegoat, for sure, but it isn't an accurate statement. This country's been tearing itself to pieces since long before the umber imbecile showed up on the scene. And this is extremely important for us to understand, because if we fail to address the real issue, we'll be right back here again. Trump is a problem, but he's not the problem. Trump is a symptom of the problem. This country would be in the same dire straits today with a President Hillary or a President Ted, God forbid, or even a President Bernie. Our problems are systemic, complex, and gargantuan. 
We've talked of many of the underlying issues on previous episodes of this program, and we'll be talking about many more in the future. But until we as citizens, as responsible individuals, start to behave like adults, start to see the issues of our country as our issues, and really want to protect our children and our democracy, until each of us commit to fixing our part of the problem, we'll just keep on electing Trumps until we get one who is actually smart enough and committed enough to do some real damage. Let me restate that thought. The country is in big trouble, huge trouble. But Trump is not the reason. We are. Trump is a sideshow. And in his own right, he is dangerous. He needs to go. But when he's gone, we'll still be here. And we'll still be in big trouble. Dumping Trump will not fix inequality a broken education system, systemic racism, or the ongoing rape and pillage of our country by the real rulers, the too-big-to-fail corporations. Mark my words, Trump is the irritating, swollen lymph node in America's armpit. He's not the cantaloupe-sized cancer in the country's lung. We must address the cancer, the lymph node, is the least of our problems. But what can and what should we do about Comrade Cheeto in the meantime? We have three options, only one of which has a snowball's chance in hell of succeeding. They are A, impeach the president for his high crimes against the people of the country. B, Turn to the 25th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and have him removed from office on the basis of his unfitness to hold that office. Or C. Vote him the hell out of office in 2020. Let's be clear. The first two have no chance of succeeding. Worse than that, there's a real possibility that an unsuccessful attempt to impeach the president or have him carried out of the White House in a straitjacket could result in serious blowback that would hurt the chances of voting him out in 2020. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. What about impeachment? What specifically could Trump be charged with if the decision to move ahead with impeachment was made? Well, there's a ton of them. We've talked about them before. Number one, obstruction of justice. Uh, pressuring Comey to look the other way vis-a-vis Michael Flynn or trying to fire Robert Mueller. Number two, profiting from office, violations of both the domestic and foreign emoluments clauses multiple times and ongoing. Number three, collusion with foreign governments, aiding Russia in its attempt to undermine our democracy. Number four, abuse of power, pardoning Joe Arpaio for his human rights violations and promising to pardon anyone who breaks the law to get his wall built, among others. Number five, instigating political and police violence. Charlottesville was where it began and every campaign speech after that. Number six, attacks on the free press. Calling the press the enemy of the people, and blocking the AT&T Time Warner merger over some spat with CNN. Seven, reckless conduct. 
taunting a nuclear power, insulting the leader of one of our allies, secret chats with Putin. It could go on and on. Eight, persecution of political adversaries, lock her up, the relentless pursuit of the FBI agents he is determined to prosecute for uncovering his Russia connection. Nine, violation of campaign finance law, payoffs to his mistresses and illegal and excessive campaign contributions. And 10, violating refugees' rights to due process, family separation, caging children, and the inhumane conditions for detainees. That's 10. You could probably dream up another 20. But why would impeachment fail when there are so many clear and well-documented crimes, any one of which, by the way, would have brought down any previous president in a heartbeat? There are several reasons why this approach would fail. Impeachment proceedings would begin when the House of Representatives draft a document called the Articles of Impeachment, which would lay out the alleged high crimes and misdemeanors perpetrated by the president. Impeachment does not mean he would be removed from office. You can think of impeachment as a kind of criminal indictment. So before any action can be taken against a president, the articles of impeachment need to be considered by the Senate, and then there's a vote which basically amounts to a trial. Conviction requires a supermajority in the Senate, and this is where the attempt would fail, and for two reasons. Firstly, the case wouldn't even make it to the Senate unless Mitch Jabba the Hutt McConnell allowed it. And as the biggest Trump sycophant and most spineless toad in all of D.C., that ain't going to happen. But if it did, by some bizarre twist of fate, the Senate would not convict him with a supermajority. The Republican senators long ago sold out and turned their backs on the country to focus full-time on washing Trump's golf balls. So, in my opinion, impeachment is probably not a good idea and probably should be avoided. What then about the 25th Amendment? We've been reading a lot about this lately. The 25th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was written into law in 1965 in response to John F. Kennedy's assassination and the mess that followed. And it was done to clear up questions about presidential succession when the president was unable to discharge his presidential responsibilities for whatever reason. It was a way to clarify what would happen if a sitting president was temporarily or permanently incapacitated, say, during a serious illness. But Section 4 of the amendment is where it gets quite interesting. At any time, the amendment states, the vice president and any eight of the sitting cabinet members, and there are 15 of those, can decide to take the president out of office. As simple as that. All they have to do is write two letters, one to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and the other to the Senate's President Pro Tempore, who's currently Chuck Grassley. And hey presto, he's out. 
Now, if the ousted president wants to fight the decision, he can by taking the matter to Congress, where a two-thirds majority in both houses would be required for the president to remain out of the job. But until the congressional votes have been tallied, the presidency is taken over by the vice president. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's most of the important points. Obviously, there are several reasons why this is never going to happen. Firstly, this would have to be initiated by Pence. And that would mean Pence would have to pull his head out of Trump's sigmoid colon long enough to sign the letters. And that's never going to happen, with 2020 right around the corner. Secondly, it would require at least eight of the 15 cabinet officers to jump on the bandwagon, and that's impossible. These men and women have been so cowed by Trump that they would never dare lift a finger. And I have a feeling they would all be just as terrified of a President Pence as we all should be. And that's a point worth dwelling on just for a moment. If by some miracle Trump could be removed from power, we would be left with something arguably much worse. Mike Pence is a genuinely scary person. While Trump play acts being a monster to hold his base, he lacks the dedication and commitment to be a real monster. Sure, he can do all the monster stuff, but he only does it as a means to an end, to feed his galaxy-sized ego. Pence, on the other hand, is the real thing. He is determined and utterly committed to serving the voices in his head. This is a man that gets turgid just thinking about the rapture. Trump may well be incompetent and distracted enough to set fire to the world by mistake, but Pence would look at starting Armageddon as his life's work. Believe me, we are much safer with Trump. And that leads us to the only realistic solution for the Trump problem. He must be voted out of office next year. And that's going to be a real challenge. Whatever little side deal Trump has been working on with his buddy in Moscow, I think it would be naive to think that a re-election victory in 2020 was not part of Putin's promise to him. Even if there is no deal, Putin would still be highly motivated to see another four years of Trump running interference for him. And of course, nothing of substance has been accomplished to protect our electoral process against the shenanigans that got Trump into the White House in the first place. And we can't forget all the hard work that the Republicans have invested in gerrymandering, redistricting, and interfering with voter registrations, all to keep Democrats from having a meaningful impact at the ballot box. But all that means we just have to work even harder to make sure that every possible voter gets out to vote in 2020. And that includes every last one of you that let the side down with your laziness, overconfidence, or disinterest in 2016. The government is a massively complicated machine. 
It's matured through the many prior administrations, but it remains complicated with many moving parts and countless subsystems carefully woven into its fabric. When it works, it works surprisingly well. But when a part breaks or a fuse blows, we get to see how vulnerable we become when the machine starts to break down. This government was never designed to be operated by an incompetent amateur and attention-seeking sociopath. But it was also never intended to be controlled by the corporate plutocracy or to function as a sparring ring for corrupt hyper-partisan politicians. But these are the prevailing conditions in our democracy today. Enough of the machine is still operational, though, and throwing the baby out with the bathwater is a dangerous mistake. What we must do is find ways for our government to function safely and effectively, despite the utter incompetence and corruption of the leadership. So with 2020 just around the corner, we have to start tooling up the vote out of office every corrupt and inept representative and replace them with people of honor who respect country over party, who dedicate their lives to work for the people, not for wealthy special interests. We need to adopt and enforce real campaign finance legislation. We must get money out of politics. Our new leaders will need to set an example for the citizens of this country, a good example. They must show the country how to cooperate, how to collaborate, and how to compromise. They must govern with compassion, intelligence, and wisdom. We can weather the storm and bide our time until Trump and every last one of his illegitimate cronies are out of government. But we had damned sure better learn the lessons of this administration. The status quo will lead to the destruction of this democracy, of that I am certain. Trump is a sad and pathetic excuse for a man, a wannabe demagogue and a spoiled brat. He draws most of his power from our outrage. Our attention is his oxygen. Trump will soon be gone and he'll be nothing but an embarrassing footnote in the history books but we'll still be here. So maybe it's time we started ignoring him and working on the things that really matter. There is so much that needs to be done in our families, in our neighborhoods, and our towns. We could start there. <laughs>